Specialty Story, session number 221. Whether you are a pre-med or a medical student, you've answered the calling to become a physician. Soon you'll have to start deciding what type of medicine you'll want to practice. This podcast will tell you the stories of specialists from every field to give you the information to make sure you make the most informed decision possible when it comes to choosing your specialty. Welcome to Specialty Stories. My name is Dr. Ryan Gray, your host here every week, and I'm excited to talk to Dr. Richard Sterling today, a hepatologist specializing in gastroenterology and transplant hepatology. He's in an academic setting. He's been out of training now for nearly a quarter century, almost over a quarter century. I hope that's okay to say, Dr. Sterling. Um, So Dr. Sterling obviously has the expertise and the knowledge and experience to talk about his specialty today. We're going to talk about what he likes about it, what he doesn't like about it, and so much more. We started the conversation by talking about what first interested Dr. Sterling in gastroenterology and transplant hepatology. Sure. So I first became interested in liver disease um, when I was an undergraduate. Uh, I was a chemistry major, and the chemistry course that I liked the best was biochemistry, since that seemed to be where all the where the sausage was made, as they say, within the body, and that's where things were either made or broken down. And I just found all those pathways fascinating about how the body builds things and breaks things down. Um, I furthered that interest with my uh, master's degree that I got at University of Texas at Austin uh, in biochemistry. And I think that sort of laid the groundwork for my interest in GI as it relates to uh, absorption of our food and nutrients and uh, the energy for the body. And then I was also very fortunate to have my chairman of medicine uh, in medical school at uh, Thomas Jefferson University be a well-known hepatologist. And I was actually surprised that everyone in my class didn't go into hepatology <laughs> after working with him. Uh, and I think I'm actually the only one that actually pursued a career in academic hepatology uh, among the 225 or so uh, members of my graduating class. Mm. Um, and so I ended up uh, matching into a internal medicine residency program that had a strong hepatology program, which was Virginia Commonwealth University. And then I was fortunate enough to be asked to come back uh, on staff in 1997 and have been here ever since. Haven't looked back. That's great. So so talk about the, the skills or traits that you think are necessary for someone to be a good hepatologist. Well, I think uh, you have to have a good understanding of the way the body works uh, and when it doesn't work. Um, One thing I really like about hepatology and particularly transplant hepatology is when the liver goes bad, often the rest of the body follows. Mm -hmm. And so we have to have an appreciation of all the other organs um, that can go wrong in someone who has a really sick liver and needs a liver transplant, including the kidneys and the heart and the lungs and, you know, the immune system and, uh, you know, bone marrow, the GI tract, the pancreas, sort of everything tends to go wrong when a liver patients get sick. And I think many individuals, 
when they get out into practice or even in training and they see a really sick liver patient, they usually run the other way and the patients are very complicated. Yeah. And because all the organ systems seem to be affecting each other. And as I like to think about it, it's a multidimensional Venn diagram, although you can't tell what circles are overlapping what other circles um, because there's a lot of other circles in the way. Yeah. Um, but I actually love those patients. So I go running to them. We're, we're sort of the Marines. We don't go running away <laughs> from disasters. We go running into them. Yeah. Uh, and I yeah. just think it's fascinating, uh, particularly now that we have ways to make people better. We have treatments for hepatitis C that can cure almost everybody. Uh, and when it comes to liver transplant, it's so rewarding to see a patient who comes in near death and without a transplant would not survive. Uh, and it's so great to see them when they leave the hospital and they come back to the clinic with their family and their back productive, you know, citizens and uh, participants in our society. Uh, and it's just that you had a role in trying to save their lives. Yeah. So as a hepatologist, um, you're specifically kind of your expertise seems to be transplant hepatology. Are you seeing patients kind of pre and post-op from a liver transplant? Who else is in there in terms of patients that you're seeing? Right. So most of my, my academic career now is uh, dealing with liver disease in people who are living with HIV. And that's what most of my research has been on. Um, uh, I do do a fair amount of transplant-related hepatology, but my practice is including patients with viral hepatitis, both hepatitis B and C, patients with fatty liver. Um, and uh, I tend to get a lot of referrals from within my group and with outside, particularly on patients who also are living with HIV, where it just, again, sort of complicates the overall picture of what to do uh, with those patients. Mm -hmm. But I also then would see patients both pre and post liver transplant, um, as well as patients who have hepatocellular carcinoma. So it's nice that I get a chance to, you know, touch a lot of different um, types of populations. And so transplant hepatology is definitely a team sport because we have to deal with surgeons, with radiologists, with oncologists, uh, as well as all the other medical specialties. Yeah. With uh, it's interesting the the HIV aspect of that is that a byproduct of HIV itself or a byproduct of the the therapies for HIV? Uh, well, most of it has to do with the risks of how they got HIV. Ah, so because of shared routes of transmission, um, hepatitis C is very common in, in those with HIV and. The way I got into this is the new therapies for HIV came out in the sort of early to mid nineties, the so-called combination therapies that allowed patients to live. And when I was a medical student in the eighties and we had uh, HIV, it was still a relatively new disease. And we were seeing very young people um, uh, often die. And when you have patients that are dying that there's that, that are your age, it, you know, definitely becomes impactful, particularly uh, the hemophilia population um, was particularly, you know, common in the hospital that I went to, to school at, which was at Jefferson. They had a very large hemophilia population. And so when I got done with my training, 
as HIV therapies got better, those patients were now living longer. And as a result, they were getting other liver diseases. And again, because of the shared routes of transmission, hepatitis C was the big one. And so the infectious disease group came to me and asked me if I would help them to manage their patients. Um, and we really didn't have anyone else around that wanted to deal with this population, much less with HIV patients at all. Back in the day, um, a lot of doctors didn't want to deal with HIV just because a lot of the unknowns. And so that's how I kind of got started in that field. And then it evolved to HIV and hepatitis B, um, which is a little less common, but also a challenge. Uh, and now my research has gotten into fatty liver in those with living with HIV. Interesting. What does a typical day look like for you? Um, well, fortunately for me, it depends on the day. There are some days that I have clinics. Sometimes they're research-related clinics. I'm fortunate enough to have um, a fair amount of research support, including uh, NIH support. Um, other days are private clinics where I might see patients primarily pre-transplant. Um, our group has nine hepatologists, and we sort of divide and conquer. And so um, I used to see a fair amount of post-liver transplant patients, but now I have um, allowed some of my other partners who want to focus on that to see those. Um, sometimes I have administrative work because uh, I have I wear a lot of administrative hats within our uh, health system. Um, I used to do endoscopy, and so that also used to uh, as a gastroenterologist. Um, and so again, my day could vary depending on the day. It's not the same thing each and every day, which at least gives some variety. Yeah. For, for a lot of students going to medical school and becoming physicians, they love the, the Sherlock Holmes of, of being a detective, trying to figure out what's going on. As a hepatologist, are you trying to figure out what's going on or are most patients coming to you with known kind of disease and you're just there for, for treatment? Uh, it, it tends to be both. Uh, certainly the thing, um, and I'm glad you mentioned Sherlock Holmes because that's one of my favorite characters. Um, <laughs> and I do sometimes feel like him um, because sometimes um, uh, I guess it's more of induction rather than deduction. Mm -hmm. But I sometimes will then have patients who come to me with unknown causes. Again, when people see abnormal liver enzymes, usually their first question is, who do I refer this to? Um, because they really don't want to go through the process to think about it. Um, so often patients come to me as a mystery without really knowing what the problem is or how bad it is. And so often I have to sort of figure that out. And I'm surprised that even after doing this for 30 plus years, I still see things that are new to me uh, or things that really are a challenge that I have to try to figure out what, what the problem is. Um, how bad is it? And is there anything I can do about it? Mm. What does call look like for you? Uh, well, call typically, again, depends on whether I'm doing the inpatient service. When I'm doing the inpatient service, uh, we have a dedicated uh, house staff team that has a senior resident and uh, two or three interns uh, and a fellow. And often I will get calls from them uh, at night depending on if there's a problem with the patients or if they want to discuss a patient that's newly admitted. Um, I used to take endoscopy call, which means I never slept. I just sort of, you know, laid there at bed at night and looked at the phone and stared at it, waiting for it to go off. 
knowing that the minute I closed my eyes, I was going to have to get called in in the middle of the night to come in and uh, do endoscopy on a, a bleeder uh, or um, someone with you know, food impaction. Um, but I don't have to take endoscopy call anymore because I've paid my dues and <laughs> I'm at a point in my career where I don't have to take that kind of night call anymore. Um, but at least working in an academic center, I do have a little bit of a buffer. So we have a lot of trainees who deal with a lot of the calls initially. So hopefully when I am on call, uh, my goal is to never uh, have to get woken up. Um, <laughs> but uh, I realize that sometimes, um, at least in the past, I've had to, you know, get up and come in and it doesn't, you know, people don't care what the weather's like. They don't uh, care how hard I work that day or how hard I have to work the next day. You know, people are calling for help. And I think, one advantage about being uh, in a tertiary care center and being a specialist is that you are the go-to person for that problem. You don't have to necessarily call someone else to help fix it. And as a hepatologist, I take that a couple steps even further because even GI people will refer their patients to me. Yeah. Um, even though they've gone through a fellowship in GI and hepatology. Okay. Do you feel like you have enough time for life outside of the hospital? Uh, my wife says no. <laughs> uh, but um, again, I think that uh, I have given up a lot in my career to get to where I've been. Uh, I've missed a lot of um, events, uh, birthdays, anniversaries, family events. Um, I know that um, I tried to spend time with my son when he was home. He's in college. Now he's hopefully will be graduating soon. Uh, and, but, um, you know, I tried to spend time with him when I could, but I think it's definitely challenging. My wife used to joke to me that uh, a homeless person vomiting had uh, meant more to me than she did Ouch. because she wanted to do something. And I said, I have to go in, you know, I just got called and I can't be here for this. Yeah. So, um, fortunately I've been married over 30 years and, and she's, you know, been very supportive of my career, uh, and, and has enabled me to often put my patients first. Yeah. Um, I think that's often a challenge, particularly when you're young and you want to have a family, um, you want to be a super husband, a super father, um, you know, a super clinician. Uh, you want to be an expert in research. You sort of want to do everything. Um, and it's very difficult. And I don't think you can do everything. I think something's got to give. Um, and I've known a lot of people that train with me that really struggled. Um, and some people have had a marriage that didn't do so well. Um, or they've had kids that have had a lot of problems. Um, or they've had a career that really haven't you know, at least academically, they talked about publishing and getting grants and doing a lot of other things. But at the end of the day, they, you know, go home. Yeah. So it's very, very hard, I think, in any academic um, practice to try to decide what that right balance should be. And um, luckily, I had a vision for what I wanted to do. Uh, and I had a wife that allowed me to do it. Let, let's talk about that vision for a second. For, for you, being an academic hepatologist, potentially wearing lots of hats, as we were kind of joking earlier, um, 
uh, and I, I don't think it's no secret that the academic world typically makes less than than the private practice world. You have this vision in your head. Where does that come from for you? The decision kind of algorithm of going into the academic world versus going out to the community. So I really didn't have any other physicians in my family when I was growing up. So I didn't really have any of those kinds of role models. There was one. Um, one cardiologist that was uh, a mentor and sort of an advisor to uh, uh, a boys group that I had was growing up. And the only thing that I remember from him is him kind of saying, if you want to be a doctor, um, you have to do a lot of reading. Uh, And I remember going, uh, when we were over at his house for functions, there would just be stacks and stacks of journals, which of course he never got to them. Um, But I do remember that. Uh, I think when I was in college, Uh, One of my chemistry professors um, told me that there are three kinds of people in this world, um, those that do, those that watch, and those that wonder. And he told me that I had to decide what kind of person I was going to be, and I decided I definitely wanted to be a doer. Uh, And I think part of my drive has also been this chip on my shoulder that um, probably from a... um, uh, uh, math teacher that I had in very, very young in elementary school who told me I probably wouldn't am, am, amount to much. Uh, so I think, you know, uh, um, she really did it. Um, so I do think that there are a lot of things that motivate me. Yeah. Um, I'm the youngest of three children, but I'm the only one that's a physician. Um, and uh so I think I just sort of decided what kind of person I wanted to be. I wanted to be a doer. I wanted to be um, an expert in something. I wanted to be um, the type of doctor that other doctors would send their patients to or their family members to. Hmm. Um, um, I like to teach. So I wanted that aspect um, because I had some great teachers um, in college that I thought uh, would be exemplars for me. And I knew that one way I could do that was um, uh, as an academic faculty. Mm-hmm. Okay. And uh, you do make a little less that I don't think the difference is as much now as it was before, but certainly when I finished my training and I stayed in academics and my colleagues at the time had gone out to private practice and I would always kind of joke because um, I was, you know, driving this old, um, Volvo that my father gave me that, you know, I think is probably more duct tape than uh, metal and they were all driving nice cars. And, uh, but it was interesting because, you know, they all sent their patients to me yeah and then they would go out for a really nice dinner and I would go home (laughs) and eat ramen noodles or something. I always thought that was a little strange, but I said, well, you know, it's about the big picture. Um, And again, I think an academic career is a marathon, not a sprint. Uh, And I just had to sort of pace myself. I think the cost, I mean, now at least the salaries are much better in academics than they used to be. And um, hepatology was traditionally not a procedural driven um, subspecialty. So hepatologists made a lot less than gastroenterologists, even because we did a lot fewer procedures. But I think as time has gone on, people have learned to appreciate the importance of needing a hepatologist because there's really no one else who wants to deal with that organ and those problems. And so I think over time we've earned our you know place. And so now I think for 
current people who are thinking about a career, that that cost difference is not that much. Yeah. So you, you mentioned, I think, a little bit earlier, the, the training path, medical school, internal medicine, residency, uh, and then what what's after that to become you in the future? So for me, again, I kind of took the long road after college. Um, I um, actually, uh, the medical school that I got into right after college wasn't one that I wanted to go to. I thought I could do much better. Um, and so I actually took a pause and said, uh, and I think that was really a reality check. Uh, you know, everyone thinks that they're the smartest and they're the best, but when you don't get in someplace that you think you should, you kind of take a pause. And I think that's another chip that I have on my shoulder. So I decided I really liked biochemistry and I really liked, you know, the science and, uh, maybe I should think about that as a career. So that's what I went to UT Austin and got a master's in biochemistry. But while I was there, I really felt like I really did well, you know, want to become a physician. That was really was my dream. So when I applied the second time, I got into almost every school I applied to. Wow. Um, and again, I think that was probably good because I ended up meeting my wife in medical school. So I'm assuming that things work out for a reason. Yeah. Um, and then, of course, after uh, you do internship and then residency, that's three years. And then fellowship for me was three years because I also, as part of that, did a research year. Um, and then once you get your fellowship, then typically you need to find a job. <laughs> and, uh, but, you know, there's still lifelong learning. Even once you get your job, you're never really done learning. And uh, uh, so I'd constantly um, trying to do better. Um, I knew I was really interested in having a clinical research career. Um, I didn't really like the lab. I um, killed a lot of guinea pigs um, <laughs> in my year in the lab, and I decided that's not what I wanted to do. I mean, it was all for science, and it was all you know done under the proper you know protocols. Um, but that's not really where my passion was, uh, and so I went and got a second master's degree. But this time, I got one in clinical research and biostatistics, mm-hmm. um, and that helped me also become, I think, a better a better a clinical researcher. And now it gives me an opportunity to, and some of the other hats that I wear um, is uh, interacting with our internal medicine residents because I'm an associate program director uh, in charge of scholarship and research. And we have 118 internal medicine residents. And so uh, that's responsibility. I've been a program director for GI and for transplant hepatology. Uh, again, working with sort of the next you know, generations um, and I also serve as the assistant chair for research for our Department of Medicine. Um, they're helping faculty uh, achieve their research goals. So um, having that type of background and my success um, in academics and publishing and getting grants and trying to think about how things has enabled me to be successful in this you know, yeah. career. For the future primary care doc listening to this or, or maybe future just general GI doc, what do you want them to know about hepatology uh, so that they can take care of their patients and, and help you as a specialist? Well, I guess uh, thinking about what I think any primary care doctor should know, I think I should probably just say the FIB4. Well, what's that? Um, the fibrosis four, the FIB4 is a simple non-invasive index that I helped develop. Um, 
uh, in assessing liver disease severity. And it's actually become one of the most widely used indices around. Um, some people say it's one of my greatest contributions, although I still think my son will be my greatest contribution to society. Um, but I would say that, you know, first, as a primary care doctor, you have to recognize that your patient might have liver disease. Um, and that's a little easy for me because I think everybody has liver disease um, because I'm a hepatologist. And as they say, I see life through a jaundiced eye. <laughs> but if uh, I think you have to recognize your patient might have a problem and um, uh, you do need to screen for things that you know, guidelines say you should be screening for hepatitis C in your patients uh, age uh, um, 18 to 79. And you should be thinking about fatty liver disease, particularly in patients who have um, obesity and hypertension and diabetes. And which is, if you think about it, that's like everybody that you see. Mm -hmm. um, but um, not everyone has a problem. Um, so one of the things you can do, though, is you can do this simple FIB4 index, which is just age, uh, two liver enzymes, the AST and the ALT and the platelet count. And it can be done in a simple form. Formula. A lot of uh, electronic health records already have this kind of built in, and that may help a primary care person to recognize that that patient might have a liver problem, and then uh, refer the patient to your appropriate specialist if you don't feel like you know you want to work it up. But I think I'd say the first thing is to be looking, you know, for it. I always say that you should be looking for liver disease before it comes looking for you. Yes. Yeah. Once it comes looking for the provider, that means it's probably they've got cirrhosis, they're jaundice, they have ascites, and probably things are pretty far along, in which case treatments are much less effective. Yeah. So if you could go back and, and uh, tell your younger self something, what's, what's something you know now that you wish you, you could go tell them, tell him? You need to use my Wayback Machine. <laughs> use your Wayback Machine, exactly. Um, I, I think um, I'd probably tell myself that it, this, uh, if you really want a, uh, a career in, in academics, it's really hard. Mm -hmm. um, it has um, a lot of challenges uh, and that you're going to get a lot of disappointments. But if you want to succeed, don't give up. Um, you know, the only person who who never gets a grant uh, or, or is someone who never submits one. Um, and I, I have files of rejections, uh, you know, denials, um, just things that I could have said, well, this isn't working out. Uh, and I think again, like early on in my life, when I, you know, had something that didn't go exactly that I had planned, I just stuck with it. Um, you know, so ultimately I think patients, uh, and, um, you know, learning to deal with disappointment, but also realizing that if something doesn't work, you don't necessarily have to try the same thing again. You have to be flexible and you have to really be honest and ask yourself, why didn't it work? And, and what do I need to do to make it work? Um, and not be so fixed yeah. in your thinking. Yeah. Constant improvement. Yeah. Life doesn't work that way. No. What do you like the most about being a, a hepatologist? Um, you know, I like helping people. Um, sometimes you can't help everybody, but you can do the best that you can. Um, 
I like being the doctor's doctor. I have a lot of um, uh, faculty staff who either come to me or send their family members to me. And I, that's really a great honor to provide things, to provide care for those people. Um, I like teaching and providing the next you know, generation with at least my version of how to approach things. They may not want to do it that way, but it gives them an option that they can incorporate what I do uh, along with everyone else that they come into contact they come into contact with to develop their own unique way of handling things. And I think hopefully I'm a little bit part, you know, part of that. Um, hopefully if I've influenced people on the way that they care for patients with liver disease or in life in general. Um, so I, I think I've, you know, at least when I, I go home, you know, during the day, I feel like I've accomplished something. What do you like the least? Um, the, well, it's very frustrating. Um, again, uh, I think as we were talking a little bit uh, before, a lot of my frustration is what I say self-imposed. Um, I take on a lot of things and I end up um, just overburdening myself. And there's a lot of things I don't have to do, but I feel obligated that if I don't do it, um, someone else could easily do it, but uh, I won't have that chance to influence my field. I think at least now, every time I turn around, I have another module or some other um, thing that we have to do for the university, whether it's, you know, some compliance, you know, module that I have to take. I've got three that I just got an email on. They usually come on Friday, very late in the afternoon, just when you're getting ready to leave. And they tell you, you have to complete these and they give you a very short timeline. Um, some of them are you know, reasonable, and I think make make me a better person. And others, uh, uh, I question whether it's active, uh, you know, shooter or stranger danger or some other module um, that I have to take. So sometimes being in academics is frustrating because of all the things that we need to do to maintain. Um, I understand why they're doing it, but it sometimes it gets overwhelming. Uh, we I work in a very big institution and. Um, I would say if it moved at a glacier's pace, that would be fast. Uh, and so there are just a lot of, um, I won't call them obstacles, but there are a lot of hurdles that you have to try to jump over to make anything happen. And I think it's frustrating that people just don't, you know, do what I tell them when I tell them. Mm. Uh, but it doesn't, but again, life doesn't work that way. Yeah. Uh, but even my friends in private practice, they don't, they're not necessarily in charge of their own lives either. They have, you know, bosses and they have health systems and they have their own different types of pressures uh, and things on them. Uh, luckily, I don't have a lot of the pressures because I talk to them and some of them are frustrated about that. They want to cut their salary or they want them to see more patients or they want them to work faster and work harder and they're frustrated too. So. Um, Sometimes I will say, well, I don't have those frustrations. So yeah. um, at least with mine, I can see a grant or I can see a publication or a presentation or I can see something for my efforts. Yeah. You, you mentioned earlier treatments for hepatitis C, kind of changing that game uh, we have with this pandemic. 
uh, mRNA vaccines kind of coming to the the forefront and and lots of uh, uses of mRNA vaccines for for everything from HIV to malaria being tested now. Um, do you see any major changes coming to the field of hepatology, whether that's through vaccines to prevent a lot of the stuff that damages the liver or other other treatments? coming down the the road that that may change hepatology in the future? Yeah, I, I would say that, you know, for, for me personally, I've had this, you know, wonderful journey with hepatitis C. So it used to be called non-A, non-B. We didn't even really know what it was. Um, we knew that it was something in the 80s. Um, we knew it wasn't hepatitis A or hepatitis B. And uh, it uh, got it when we, you know, finally discovered the actual um, that it was an RNA virus and we had an antibody test for it. That was in the early 90s, but the treatments were pretty rough. They were injections called interferon and they had a lot of side effects and they didn't work well. But as we began to use you know, better types of interferons and add other drugs to that, ultimately to where we have the current regimens, which are pills only that have almost no side effects and can cure almost everybody. Just in my academic lifetime, we've gone from discovery to cure. Um, and and I, that's been a wonderful journey that I've been able to be a part of and have made some contributions to. Um, so that's been really you know, great. I think with hepatitis, uh, there are some, a few new things about hepatitis C they're working on. There are some vaccine studies, some therapeutic vaccines that they're working on. We are actually participating in the clinical trial of one using a virus vector. Um, again, I, we're early on in the trial, so I don't, I, I don't know if that's gonna be the answer or not. Hepatitis B uh, is working. There's a lot of exciting things happening with hepatitis B virus, which is a DNA virus, um, looking at combinations of treatments um, uh, that are much, hopefully much better than what we currently um, are doing. And then fatty liver is the big disease um, that we're dealing with right now. Uh, and there's lots and lots of clinical trials out there. There's really nothing that's great that's approved for fatty liver disease, particularly non-alcoholic fatty liver disease. And there's lots of clinical trials for that. And fortunately, my center is very involved in those. Um, I would say alcohol is a big problem now. It's even gotten bigger uh, during the pandemic as people are now staying home and, and drinking and are we've now changed how we've approached alcoholic hepatitis, including now doing liver transplants on select patients who come in with alcoholic hepatitis. So that's been a big change. And our transplant center has gone from being a moderate size to now we're one of the larger ones in the country because we've changed the way that we deal with it. But um, there's a whole process of, uh, you know, again, it's a team sport with addiction, psychiatry, uh, and substance abuse uh, specialists and the way that we try to support patients to, you know, keep them from going back to drinking. Um, liver cancers uh, used to be um, sort of the kiss of death and, and people used to have a liver cancer and say, well, I, I guess that's too bad. You might as well get your affairs in order. But now we have treatments for liver cancer where patients are living much, much longer with better qualities of life than they ever have. So there's just lots of things going on within hepatology yeah. that at least is exciting. And it's been great because I think it's it's really happened over the last, let's say, 20 to 30 years, a lot of these advancements, uh, and I've been able to be part of that. If you had to do it all over again, would you still be a academic hepatologist? 
I, I do think about that and I really don't think there's anything else I would be doing. Um, I've had opportunities to do what I do elsewhere and haven't taken those because I think our group here uh, is so strong and I really do think we are making contributions um, and everybody's been very supportive. Um, I think the fact that I've had wonderful mentors along the way uh, has really helped impact uh, my career. And again, I think it's somewhat maybe faith that I ended up here as opposed to friends who maybe ended up elsewhere and didn't have such a successful academic career. Yeah. Um, so I really can't think of anything else I would be doing in life if I wasn't doing this. Yeah. Any final words of wisdom for the student listening to this, thinking about hepatology as their career? Uh, I think it's a, I still think it's a wonderful, you know, opportunity. I, I think that the, you know, things that used to be very big, uh, like hepatitis C, when I first was coming out of training, where a lot of people were focusing on that, um, it's, you know, similar to when I was in the lab, uh, that year in the lab, I was looking at gallstone pathogenesis, um, but then laparoscopic cholecystectomy came along and there went that entire line of research. You just have gallstones, take them out. Um, I think hepatitis C is somewhat similar. I can cure almost everybody now, as long as I catch them, you know, before they get to uh, end stage liver disease. But hepatology has just been a wonderful career, particularly uh, if you want to practice a little GI. I do like working with my hands. I used to do a fair amount of endoscopy. Um, so for me, I got to do both procedures and with hepatology, I got to do the cognitive aspect. Um, I got to work in the ICU, which I really think ICU medicine is fascinating. We spend a lot of time in the ICU, but I don't have to live there. Um, uh, I, I do like ambulatory patients. Uh, so for me, hepatology, you get a little of everything. Uh, and if you decide to focus on one of those aspects, you have the ability to do that. And there's not a lot of other specialties out there that you know, give you such a variety of, of options to focus on um, in your career once you get there. All right, there you have it. Again, Dr. Richard Sterling, gastroenterologist, transplant hepatologist, talking about his specialty. I hope you learned something today, got something out of this. If this is a specialty you want to check out, there are a few websites potentially you could check out. You can check out the International Liver Transplantation Society, the ILTS.org. You can check out the American Society of Transplantation at myast.org uh, or potentially the AASLD.org website which is the American Association for the Study of Liver Diseases. So lots of potential organizations out there for you to go check out to see if you are even more interested in this specialty. Hope you have a great week. Don't forget to subscribe to get this podcast for free every week. And if you are new here, go check out all other the other 220 episodes of Specialty Stories. Have a great week. We'll see you next time. This is MedEd Media.